Welcome to Shop Talk Live, episode number 231, the final 2020 episode. Yes, it has been quite the year for Shop Talk Live. We've gone remote, we've figured out all sorts of systems and ways of recording this podcast, and we've had a lot of guests on because of that. And thank you to each and every one of you for sticking with us while we grew, honestly. I think that this podcast is better because of the distancing than it was before. We're able to have on more guests and just spread the love a little bit more, and it's a wonderful thing. With that in mind, this is the second time Mike and I had to record this episode, so we're still figuring it out. We got it this time, though. So we've got a fun episode for you. We discuss router tables and whether they're worth dedicating shop space to, oddball scenarios for panel glue-ups, and we answer a couple of wood questions about hickory and butternut. So again, thank you to the listeners of Shop Talk Live, the subscribers of Fine Woodworking Magazine, the members of FineWoodworking.com. Without all of you... We don't have a day job, and we sincerely appreciate your support. And cheers to 2020. Good riddance. Back in a minute after a word from our sponsors. Whether you're working in the shop or on the job site, it's not a debate that dust extraction is incredibly important. That's why Festool USA has continued to innovate ways to deliver top-tier dust extraction solutions, as best seen in Festool's new CT48AC. This machine is designed to capture high volumes of dust and keep the job progressing with its 12.7 gallon capacity and continue operating at its peak efficiency with its automatic cleaning mechanism. The versatile CT48AC syncs with Festool tools via Bluetooth for seamless operation and is also OSHA Table 1 compliant for materials containing silica dust and it is well suited for a diverse set of job site tasks while limiting downtime for emptying filter bags due to its large capacity. Backed by the company's three-year wear and tear warranty, the CT48AC is built for the toughest demands. For information, visit festoolusa.com slash fall2020. Still waiting to subscribe to Fine Woodworking? Now's the time. Follow us on social and be sure to visit finewoodworking.com frequently as we will have some pretty incredible sales coming your way this holiday season. So yeah, we recorded yesterday and uh, we even had a backup that failed. So here we are, snow day. There you go, yeah. I guarantee you my son's going to walk in in the middle of this recording. Uh, That's okay. He's outside playing in the snow. He's going to tell me about some crazy thing he did. So now is he a, a digger or a builder in the snow? He, um, I, I will just, uh, throw all the snow with the snow blower in a huge pile and yeah, he's yeah. just sliding down it right now. Oh, and cool. Okay. Yeah. It might be a little too much for him to dig right now. All right. We'll, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, but you know what I got to thinking about though? What's that? The snowblower got me thinking about dust collection systems and how someone needs to invent a dust collection system with like an auger thing that empties the dust bin out. I haven't really thought this through, obviously, but there's something there. Okay. You're not buying it. 
Um, I probably, <laughs> I guess not. No. <laughs> I just think that there's like the, the emptying of the bin is just such a hassle. Yes, it is. I agree that. Yeah. I'm overcomplicating it. Forget it. No, I shouldn't snow blow and think about woodworking at the same time. No, uh, in my dream world, I'd have a dust collector where that just ported out like a hole in the wall or something. And I just had this mound of sawdust collecting in the back of my shop. Yeah. And just put a little sign up in your yard that says free sawdust. And <laughs> that's it. Free sawdust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? There would be one person a year who would walk up and be like, really? <laughs> oh, well, there's definitely a market for sawdust with chicken poop in it. That's like an, that's like a great thing for gardening. Really? Yes. Okay. So when you when you clean out the chicken coop, yeah. and you got the sawdust. Yeah, that's gold. I would. I should just like sell it by the wheelbarrow full. Five bucks a wheelbarrow. Um, Bring the I wheelbarrow mean, back when you're done. Yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, the idea is that someone will come and take it without having to pay you to take oh, it. Oh, okay. All or right. you have to pay them to take it. Yeah. All right. Well. We got to work on our, uh, we're, we're not real good entrepreneurs here. I don't think. No, we still have full-time jobs. So I think there's that, there's that is an too, indicator. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's answer some questions. Right on. Again. Let's see if, uh, let's, let's see if we wander back to the notes I had from last time. Okay. Um, all right. This first question is from Paul. Let's say one is making a wider panel or tabletop from solid stock so that a glue up is required to obtain the necessary width. When preparing the stock, I know there are valid reasons for ripping the boards into narrower strips. The board might be wider than your joiner or the stock might be cupped enough that you will end up too thin if you try and remove all of the cup at once. Sometimes you see it said that by ripping the stock and flipping over every other board before gluing up, you will wind up with a panel that stays flatter. I don't like to do it that way because it makes hand planing a pain, but I understand the idea. But I've also heard it argued that ripping the boards into narrower strips and then gluing them back together in the same exact orientation, no flipping or rearranging, also results in a more stable panel. I don't think I buy this. If you rip a board in half and then glue it back together exactly as it was, that I think it will stay the same way and 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 warp the same amount that as it would have if you hadn't ripped it. But that's just my opinion, and I'd like to hear from some experts. Uh, thanks for any light you can shed on this. I love the pod and the mag enough to be an unlimited member. P.S. Yes, I'm an engineer. So, engineers in woodworking, they, they just seem to go hand in hand, don't they? Yes, they do. And I don't think that's a coincidence. So why, well, um, no, wait, no, why, why do you think that is? Oh, um, because I think woodworking at its very core is an exercise in creative problem solving. Like I think that it's a misnomer to think that you can read enough, watch enough YouTube videos, take enough classes to where you can go into your shop and not encounter a situation that you're not prepared for. I think there's always going to come a time where you're going to get in the shop. You're going to be faced with something and you say, huh, how do I tackle that? And you might have a lot of experience. You may have, 
you know, had a, a couple techniques or, or read something, but it really comes down to, you gotta figure it out. And I think that's, it's not a bad thing to me. I think that's, that's the biggest challenge is that, you know, you'll, you'll come up against a roadblock. How the heck am I going to do that? Um, and it can be even something that you've done a million times, but now that you stopped, you started thinking about it. It's like, um, like gluing a shelf um, that's dadoed into a case side. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's easy enough. I've done that a million times, but there's a rabbit in the case side for the back and the shelf has to be exactly flush with that inside edge of the rabbit and glue and dados and wood. The thing slides around a little bit. And so now that I'm trying to come up with a way to tell other people to do it, it's like, I don't know. I've never thought about it, but yeah, that's super important. How do you do it? So, um, because what happens is if you glue the board in and let's say it's, it's a little shy of the rabbit on one side, but it goes into the rabbit a little bit on the other side, you basically have a glue up where your sides are not in the same plane as the other. So it's, it's more than just, you know, something that's just slightly misaligned. Now your whole case is out of black. So now, so then I started thinking, well, I know I'm going to get a strip of wood, cover it in clear tape so glue doesn't stick. And I'm going to double stick tape that piece of wood into the rabbit at the back of the case. And then I can flush up the shelves to that block of wood in each rabbit and then leave it a little bit wide in the fronts and then plane it down flush. So all of a sudden this problem that you've just sort of glossed over every time you've ever done it without any problem whatsoever, you've just turned this into like a a mountain of uncertainty in your mind. (laughs) And I've just turned this into like this horribly complex process that now I'm going to tell everybody, this is what you need to do. Because if you don't, bad things can happen when, if you didn't even know that problem existed, you would probably be okay. Yeah. Except when you're not, and then you're screwed. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. And we're trying to get everyone to the finish line. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so it's kind of that, that instance where, yeah, the more you think about it and I think like the really good engineers, woodworking is almost more difficult for them because they really have an understanding of, of the situation at hand, the physics and what can go wrong. Yeah. And, um, I think some of the smartest people, have the most complex solutions to simple situations. But then when you read about their solution and you read about why all of a sudden you start to freak out too, because it's like, Oh, I never considered that. All I know is that, yeah, sometimes this happens and I have to do this to fix it. You know what I mean? Instead of saying, why does that happen? Sometimes maybe you got to back up a bit and look at your process. So I don't know. There's a, Talking about smart people and complex solutions. So, uh, what was it, three day, two, two, two days ago, Barry and I drove up to New Hampshire to shoot another day with uh, Tom McLaughlin. Drove yeah. up separately, drove up, whew, three and a half hour drive up, eight hour shoot, three and a half drive hour, three and a half hour drive back. It's, you know, long day. But, um, oh. We get it done. But Tom McLaughlin is one of those guys who I think hits the next level of smart sometimes maybe where 
it's super simple solutions yeah that come from it yeah. or or i i don't want to like compare iq levels or whatever but there is smart people with complex solutions and then there's smart people with the simplest solution and um Wow, we're really getting off topic right well, now. Well, we but, already answered the question yesterday. So. Yeah, I know. It's just unintelligible. <laughs> but um, so there's a YouTuber that I follow, Jeremy Fielding, and he always talks about how an engineer wants to answer the problem with exactly the right amount of material. Extra material cost more and okay. is too much or whatever. It's like, so he's always, he's always saying the simplest solution, the least number of steps with the least amount of material that covers your bases. That's like the perfect engineer right there. Yeah. Um, but I see so many, so, so many people or so many companies with something as simple as a drill press fence. That is super, super, super complicated. And Tom McLaughlin's drill press fence, I looked at it and I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. This is, he has it whittled down to the essence of what it needs to be. And it was a stick. I'm, he might've had F clamps on it. There might've been wing nuts or, you know, or whatever, but it was just a straight stick with a small rabbit on the bottom. So that sawdust. Didn't uh, yeah. get in between the workpiece. <laughs> and yes. it was like, this is the smartest drill press fence I've ever seen. I've seen others with more features and more whatever, but this is the essence of what this drill press fence needs to be. And that is like, oh, I love that. Yeah, All I right. agree. Yeah, my favorite woodworkers that I consider to have the most brilliant engineering minds are exactly that, like Michael Fortune, Steve Latta. <laughs> Uh, Tim Coleman, when you see him build things, it's, it's, you can, the best people break complex situations down into very, very simple steps. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's always brilliant to watch. And I learned so much from that. So. Yeah. All right. Question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I'm so sorry. ripping, ripping apart a board and gluing it back together in the same yes. orientation. Who is the question asker again? Paul. Paul. Um, okay, Paul, number one, you're on the right track. I think all of your instincts are sound. And number two, stop listening to what everybody is saying and wondering if it should make sense when it doesn't make sense to you. Um, Four people just turned the podcast off. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, probably the biggest thing, um, one of the pieces of conventional wisdom that I used to hear a lot that I don't necessarily follow is the notion of alternating each board, you know, heart side down, heart side up, heart side down. So the idea being that as each one sort of bows or cups individually through, you know, seasonal humidity changes, that the, they're going to counter each other out. And you're going to end up with more of a washboard of ripples, you know, with each board doing its own thing, as opposed to everything aligned, creating one massively large cup. Um, sounds good, but I actually prefer, I think it's much, much easier to control the movement of a single cup across the surface than it is all the little multiple guys, because you can, mm. 
you know, a table with aprons or a trestle table where you have, you know, little cross stretchers or cleats going underneath. They do a really good job of, of keeping a panel flat. Um, so in terms of this notion of ripping boards apart and then gluing them right back up, um, I don't see any benefit to that except for the ones that you already raised. Either it's too wide to flatten on the joiner, um, and there are some workarounds for that if you want to create a sled that you can support the piece and run it through the planer to kind of flatten one face and all that kind of stuff, which which might be worth your while. You know, if it's only an inch or two wider than my jointer, I just take the guard off, set it for a heavy cut, and I make one pass, and it leaves a mostly flat surface with this lip along the one edge, which was wider than my jointer blades. And then I just get like a narrow piece of plywood or MDF, eight inches wide, the length of the board, and set the board on it, the plane surface down. So the that little lip is now sort of suspended in air. And you can plane the opposite side, get that flat, then flip it over, and then you can plane off that lip. So yeah. um, again, we're, we're sort of digressing. But um, the other thing you mentioned was that uh, a board with a severe cup on a wide board, by the time you flatten that, you're going to be removing a lot of material, ripping that into multiple strips, uh, planing each one and gluing it back up. You're going to save a lot of thickness on that board. So, you know, there are instances where that's a, a super good thing. Um, for me, uh, the main thing is um, the way the piece looks once it's glued up. I think that's super important. Uh, the other consideration is how easy is this thing to hand plane, meaning is a grain going in the same direction on each board? Because uh, if you're not careful and you do have some grain direction mismatch between boards and it changes right at a glue line, it's super tough to avoid getting tear out on yeah. one side or the other, depending on on how you're planing. Um, however, you know, the notion of ease of planing and how something looks, those aren't necessarily unrelated or independent of each other, meaning you're going to sacrifice one or the other, because if the grain on the boards are diving in different directions on either side of the glue line, that chatoyance or luster, when the light hits it, is going to be different from board to board. So even if the grain itself has a good match, as you kind of walk around the table and the light hits it from different angles, you know, one of those boards is going to look light while the other one looks dark just because of the way the light is refracting off of the kind of the translucent material. And then as you walk around, it's, it's going to change. So if they're oriented, so all the grain is going in the same direction, which makes it easier for planing, it's also going to look less conspicuous. I mean, sometimes you want conspicuous, you know, mm -hmm. if you're doing like a, sunburst veneer and you want to book match that and then you have this grain really diving in at different angles and the chatoyance is different and it really highlights the pattern of the that sort of you know veneer work or marquetry or parquetry um but typically in a panel glue up you're kind of looking for something which is less conspicuous not drawing attention to the glue lines i'm never trying to fake the look that hey this is one wide board and not glued up, but I think you can still end up with something that's pleasant to the eye, um, short of looking like a single board. So grain direction, obviously sapwood, obviously what the grain, you know, the rings are looking like as they meet the joint 
Um, all those things are super important. Uh, ben, you had talked about the notion of slip matching versus book matching. And I think this was something you picked up from Tom McLaughlin when you were up there. Yeah. And I, I will, the day that this episode comes out tomorrow, um, I have to finish editing a masterclass video today too, to release tomorrow. Um, it's, it's a video of him doing just that. Um, looking at a board, taking a, a, a wide board and he's got an 11 inch wide board needs a 20 and a half inch top and figuring out how he's going to glue that up to get that, to get this top. Now keep in mind, it's a shaker dresser. So it's simple, generally not um, flamboyant with their grain selections and things like that, which, you know, that style can handle that, but he's going for a, a, a seamless glue up or not a seamless glue up, but a visibly seamless glue up. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's just him taking the board and figuring out the orientation and he winds up with a slip joint and I've known about slip joints and people talk about slip joints and, um, Tim Coleman did a really great, uh, article a couple of years back on, um, I think it was like four different ways of, um, joining matching. Yeah. matching yeah. Grain matching. And, um, until I shot this video with Tom, I never really saw how powerful a slip joint could be where you wind up with a top that is, it, it doesn't look like a single board because the grain isn't, you know, trees don't do that. Sure. But, um, you can't really tell where the glue line is. And just like him reading that board and saying, Oh, I see the grain coming out this way and it's doing that. And it's really, really powerful, a slip joint. And it really made me rethink. I think for years, I always, the Holy grail was a book match. And there's still times when I'm going for that book match, um, especially on instruments, instrument backs and, you know, oh, sure. trying, try and get like that, that sap line to perfectly book match so that you get the the mirror image and it's just really fun. Yeah. Um, but a slip joint that that's going to be firmly embedded in my hip pocket for, from now on, because that's, that's a great way of gluing up boards um, while maintaining uh, hand plane ability and the chatoyance of grain direction from both sides. And he, he talks about all that in the video. So I'll definitely post up a link cool. in the show notes. Yeah. So the idea, you know, just to, you know, explain a slip match versus a book match, a book oh, matches. Yeah, if you point. have, Sorry. let's say two boards sawn from the same log, or let's say, you know, two lengths cut from the same board, which I think for a lot of tabletops or, or something is, is kind of more common, but um, anyway, so if you have two boards cut from the same log and you open them up like a book, um, that's where you're going to get the grain running in, in different directions. You're going to get this symmetry, which I don't necessarily like because it does draw a lot of attention to that glue line where the grain is coming in in different directions. The other option is to take those two leaves and slide them apart. So you're maintaining the same orientation. Um, and what you get is a consistent grain running. And if you have a board that, let's say it's a plain sawn board, but the grain, you know, the rings are diving down at an angle toward the end. So you have these edges with the straight riffs on grain. If you do a slip match and you're matching riffs on grain to riffs on grain on the edges, that's going to be pretty 
seamless. And the one thing is if you do a slip match and the boards have a little cathedral to them and you slip match them, you're still going to end up with those double arches, like the little McDonald's arches. Uh, However, if you slip match them, you can flip one board end for end and you still have consistent grain orientation. Um, But now the cathedrals are going in opposite directions. And what you have is this big sort of S pattern going across the tabletop. And you have this, you know, this angled grain going across the glue joint, which really does a great job of minimizing the look of the glue joint. So I'll either try to do a straight slip. Um, If it doesn't look, I'll flip it. Where that doesn't work is let's say you've got a board which you have riffs on on one edge but then almost say more plain sawn on the other edge. So now if you slip it, you're going to have a riff sawn edge matching a plain sawn edge. That's Mm. where it doesn't look good. That's where I may start to break my own rules, rotate it around to maybe get the plain sawn surfaces together or the riff sawn surfaces together, whatever is going to give me a better glue line. And my grain's going in the wrong direction, but sometimes that's your best choice. So I don't think there's ever... An easy single answer. Um, I think I always get to the point where I come up with the least bad solution. And then by the time I'm done, I'm really happy with it. But it just feels like at the time, ah, that's the best I can do. Oh, well. And then you move on to the next thing. Oh, that's the best I can do. Oh, well. And then, you know, but I still think that's a really powerful way to end up with good furniture is is working toward the point of frustration, calling it good, and then moving on. You know, as long as you're you're sort of exhibiting that mindfulness and sweating over each thing, I think you're better off than not paying attention to it until you put finish on it. And then all of a sudden, you wonder what color stain you need to hide <laughs> all of these weird things that are happening. So. Yeah, and, you know, make it look right and... You know, if you need to take it to a wide belt sander, that's what that's what you need to do. It's worth thirty bucks for a piece of sure. for a tabletop yeah, or, to get wide belt sanded or something. That's exactly yeah. yeah. Um, or your poor man's wide belt sander is three or four scrapers, sharpen them all up. <laughs> you got a bunch of edges. It's good know, practice. Put some, put some duct tape on your thumbs to keep them from heating up and yeah. go at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the only thing that I can think of from like you know, uh, and, uh, and maybe I'm sure that somebody can chime in and leave a comment and let us know what the thinking of is for ripping apart a board and gluing it back together is would the glue lines add strength, you know, cupping and twisting wise or no, it's, uh, yeah. I, what world are we living in No, That's yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. If someone says, no, this is the reason why. So, um, I can't think of it. I can't think of a good reason either. I have been known to rip really wide boards in half to joint and plane them and glue them back up, but not intentionally taking something that I could manage milling and ripping it just for the sake of doing that. I don't see it. But I, and the other thing is when you're woodworking, the whole point is to get something temporarily flat because it's, everything is moving, you know, as you speak. So the idea is you mill all your parts straight and square and flat. 
you assemble it and then you depend on the assembly itself, the construction method to then hold those pieces flat. So the yeah. idea that that trying to dovetail bowed boards is super hard, but if you can bow, uh, dovetail them while they're flat and then basically bang them together into a dovetailed case, the dovetails are going to do the job holding them flat for you. So Yeah, there's there's rarely I can't think of a good reason why a wide board is left untethered. Yeah. You know, outside of a like a, a plank door maybe. Yeah. But again, you could put battens on the back to hold it flat or you know, there's always there's always something there to to keep it in yep. line. Yeah. So. I think so. All right. Let's see. Question number two is from Kevin. Over the last couple of years, I've been fitting up a 20 by 24 shop and I pretty much have most of the things I need, but I've been on the fence about adding a router table. My space is about the size of Mike's. And though I've got room for a router table, everything is a spatial and tool compromise at this point. For example, in the space I'd be putting the table in, I can alternatively add more lumber storage or a spindle disc sander or a small CNC machine. I'm curious how others feel about having a dedicated router table and how often they get used. Told you. <laughs> My kid walked in. <laughs> um, do you need to take a break? Nope. <laughs> okay. He, he, I, I give him this and he walks in and goes, tells mom what he's, what crazy okay. thing he just did. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wanted to hear it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'd say a router table is a really valuable thing to have. And if you have enough floor space where you can burn, you know, four square feet with a stationary router table, I definitely go for it. But short of that, um, I do think it's important because just taking a handheld router and mounting it upside down and attaching it to a board with a hole in it, and it basically turns it in from a mobile machine, which is really, really useful in a lot of uh, circumstances, um, to a stationary machine, which is really, really useful in a lot of different circumstances. And I think it, it really, they become functionally two different machines in terms of what you can do and the way you use them. So I definitely think... Yeah, router tables in your future. I don't use mine all that often, but when I use it, I still don't enjoy using it. I probably it's one of the least satisfying things to to use in terms of noise and dust. I, However, yeah, but if if I'm if I'm using a noisy dusty router, I I prefer it table mounted. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think well, I, think I really don't enjoy using handheld routers. No, I don't. That's no fun. Yeah, so um yeah, so I've got a super small shop. I don't have room for a floor standing router table. I do have a benchtop router table. Um, and so it doesn't have maybe quite the, the table surface. I think it's like a 22 by 16 top, which is on the small side, but I find it's fine. I'm not running 10 foot lengths of trim stock, you know, cutting coves or thumbnails for base molding or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, the longest thing I'm doing is I might be routing profiles in chair legs or something like that. So you end up with a pretty long, pretty heavy jig with hold downs and work pieces. Um, it's definitely doable. However, even though it's a, it's a benchtop model, it still has a cast iron router lift. It still has a three horse motor in it. So it's still, 
and it weighs like a hundred pounds. So I used to like keep it under a counter and have to hoist it out. I'm, I'm done with that. So it does live on this sort of mobile rolling cart. So, which is by default, in essence, I have a router table because my- Wait, it isn't living on that tippy Harbor Freight. No, 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 no. Okay. All right. You've got this one cart that like, I look at it and it wants to fall over. It's funny you should say that because right now, you know, because I'm working on my book, I'm doing a lot of photos. So I have a lot of props. I have a lot of things which, okay, done with that. Where do I put it? On the cart. Okay, done with that. Where do you put it? On the cart. I can't take it, man. I have about, it's about like seven feet high of stuff (laughs) precariously tipped and you just breathe on it and it just like wobbles side to side. That is the sketchiest cart I've ever seen. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, router table, floor standing, I get that you don't have the space, but, but bang together a really quick benchtop thing. In fact, uh, the book I'm working on, I didn't really want to go there, but I said, you know what, um, router table, they can be super expensive to buy and they're, they're they're good, but, um, you can end up spending like. 1200 bucks on a router table and that is not including the router lift or the motor so you're going to spend three or four hundred more bucks on a router lift and then maybe a couple hundred bucks on a router motor um to me that's a significant barrier to entry unless it's like yeah i've been doing this for years i really want to step up that's good however you can bang together a benchtop router table from a quarter sheet of plywood in like literally less than two hours and bolt on a router, a fixed space router to the underside. And you have a router table for basically, you know, if you already have the router around, it's going to cost you, you know, 30 bucks uh, for a quarter sheet of plywood in an afternoon. And there it is. So I don't think there, there's a monetary excuse for not having a router table. It's not going to have the bells and whistles of a router lift and a big heavy duty motor, but, um, a little benchtop model um, with a like one and a half horse DeWalt router uh, that served me really well for a lot of years. I think that that curve flattens out. The more money you spend, you're not necessarily yeah. getting an equal amount back. Once you once you stick any old router on the other side of a piece of plywood with a hole drilled in it, yeah, you, that that usefulness to money curve go straight through the roof. You start adding more money. It is nice. I, you know, when we had the old shop and we had that beautiful, um, Jessam lift. Yeah. Oh, the three horse quarter cable motor in that thing. What a luxury. And I just remember being like, this is, this is Nirvana. Yeah. You know, it had the vacuum mounted, you know, a dedicated vacuum mounted in the, base and every, I mean, it was wonderful. Yeah. And when I moved into this shop, I thought that that was going to be one of the things that really, really drove me nuts. Not having a a nice router lift, not having a big heavy table with big top and all that. And the more I worked, it was like, you know what? That's really nice. But a sheet of plywood with a hole drilled in it, and the router stuck to the other side of it, that's kind of getting the job done most of the time. Yeah. And I think there's that gray area between like super cheap and simple and doing a good job to super heavy duty 
micro adjust router lift it lets you do all your bit changes from above the table which is yeah. really nice it has a yeah. series of of the ring inserts of different diameters that lock in and are super level and you know there's and a big powerful motor that's really the other end of the spectrum you can still stick that in a in a shop made router table um you know and save some of the cost but then you have a good motor lower vibration you're typically using half inch shank bits and something like that so it's just going to be a lot smoother um there is a benefit there but like going halfway in between i think you can get stuck in that money performance black hole like for instance there's a lot of routers marketed as being suitable to use in a router table typically they're plunge routers they have some mechanism where you can unlock and lift the base up and down from the top mm-hmm. and we we did a review on those and one of the uh, woodworker i work with every year he had a model that was chosen like one of the best in the review but um i hated using that thing it's like a ton of vibration super loud the cuts were like really chattery and i was really surprised because it wasn't what I experienced at my router table. Hmm. And I basically told them, it's like, you got to get, <laughs> you got to get a router lift and a router. And, you know, so, and that's one of those things where, you know, a simple little router and a plywood table in a way did a much better job than that. Yeah. I can see that, that yeah. medium path, but then you go up to that next level and it's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's kind of <laughs> nice. So. I've, I've never, um, I so I have a one and three quarter horse DeWalt. Um, yeah, with two bases. It's a plunge base and a, a non-plunge base. He's back, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, I have never found myself wanting for power. I don't know. It's like you know, I'm not doing like huge. Um, you know those door bits, those those door profile, the, wing, the big old wing. Yeah, cutters, you know, yeah, like the, I'm not ninety yes. percent of the time. There's a flush cut bit in there with bearing yeah. on top and the bearing on the bottom, and then sometimes I pull it out and I'm trying to think what else goes. <laughs> not much, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think the three horsepower router, great, and and these are all things like if I walked in somebody's shop and they had the. $5,000 router table. I'd be like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I would not hold it against anyone for having a killer router table set up. It's just for me, I've never needed the extra power. Um, I've always gotten by with sticking my hand under and trying to get it adjusted to the right height and everything. Um, and my router table is in the wing of my table saw. Oh, that's perfect. Um, so that's, there's no space yeah sacrifice there at all and and honestly and you know kevin if is it worth the thing i did have a a dedicated router table um that i took the router top off of cut it down put it in the wing of the table saw and expanded the base to make drawers and um just another tabletop i didn't think it was worth the footprint in my shop, yeah. I needed more storage than I needed a router table. Um, yeah. Just that's the way it works for me, but it's going to be different for everyone. Yeah. But, yeah. And the, sometimes this, the issues where the size of the router bigger isn't necessarily 
better. I really like those DeWalt. I think Porter Cable has one, maybe Makita, but they have trim routers where you can get both a fixed base and a plunge base um, with them. I love that little router with a plunge base for yeah. small stuff like hinge mortises or, you know, uh, routing out, you know, recesses for inlay or something like that. Much nicer to either balance on an edge or work into an area than, than hoisting a big three horse plunge router, which I do have. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, and I think you'd mentioned this yesterday as well, a really good solution if you want to bang together a router table is get a combo kit router. So it's a regular, you know, mid-sized router that comes with a plunge base and a fixed base and you screw the fixed base to the bottom of your router table. So now you have a plunge router to use by hand, which I think is super important and useful to have. And then you can pull the motor out and shove it into the fixed base and you have a router table without having to goof around with anything. Well, and one, I'm going to take my headphones off for a minute because one aspect, It's great audio right here. Um, as I knock into the microphone, one awesome thing about that is, um, so I don't have a plate. I just have a piece of MDF. The whole thing oh, is cool. half inch MDF. Oh, you made your own plate. I made yeah, my own plate. Um, you can do that. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you're broke enough. <laughs> um, but sometimes you want a really wide base. Oh. like rabbiting a case that's already assembled or something. Yeah. A really wide base is nice. Yeah. So my fixed base, I will take the whole plate out and use it as a wide based router. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's about the, about the size of a ping pong table for the people who weren't watching. It. <laughs> yeah. It's, but it works. There are times when like that has saved the day. Cause yeah. you know, you wind up if the wider a base is and, but I've got to go handheld. Oh yeah. The wider the base is, the more stable it's going to be. Absolutely. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, all of my trim routers that I use for usually routing the waste between pins and dovetailing, I have a oversized rectangular offset base. So I have yeah. a ton of support, you know, over the, the uh, surface of, I use a routing jig over the surface of the jig. And the same thing there, if you're routing profiles on the edge of a board or something, you have that really big support to keep that flat. Yeah. That's a great idea. Very cool. All right. Let's take a break. Okay. Here's a fan favorite, Gary Rogowski from the Northwest Woodworking Studio, here to tell you about their new online mastery program. Thanks, Ben. The Online Mastery Program is a new distance learning version of our mastery classes that have run now for 20 years. We train folks in both design and furniture making techniques using a full kit of tools from hand to power tools. Our goal is to teach people how to make great furniture. Over our two years together, people will design and build 11 pieces. Students work from their own shops, meeting online with me for three trimesters each year with weekly lectures, videos, and discussions. Our first online group started in the fall, and it's been great. I want to point out that this program is not just for seasoned woodworkers, though. We take on all levels but true beginners, anyone with a desire to deepen their understanding of the craft and who commit to building a lot of great work. The requirement is that you work from your own shop with your tools and a good internet connection and camera so you can join our class each week on Zoom. 
Invest in yourself. Invest in your education. All right. So we did our uh, our segments, our all-time favorite whatever yesterday, but I'm going to change mine today because I have a smooth move now. Oh, all right. No, in that short a time, in the 24 hour span. Okay. Yeah, not even. Yeah. Um, so I am finishing uh, four ukuleles at a time right now. And normally I've, I've just about always French polished or shellacked, we'll say fancy shellacked them. Um, I just came up with a new term. It's half ass French polishing, fancy shellac. um but this time i am i needed to build it faster and i wanted it to be a little bit uh more of a robust finish so i decided to go with wipe on poly and uh i'm doing four at a time so you know just every day i pull one you know pull them down sand them then just go through them and i've got them hanging up on my on my ceiling. I've got four screws in the ceiling and just a bunch of ukuleles hanging around. Oh, cool. Well, one of them, I must have, um, I must have wiped it on a little too thick and I pull it down to, to sand it and put another coat on yesterday. And I have it sitting on my bench and it was one of those. I, I don't know if I would have noticed it if it wasn't just sitting there for a minute. And I walked by and there was something out of the corner of my eye that was like, what is that? And there was a huge drip mark. Wow. Where the finish had run down Mm -hmm. and formed a drip, you know, and it was an eighth of an inch thick. And it was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm making these ukes for other people. So I want them to be right. And, um, I, I, I was I was really annoyed at myself and I thought, am I gonna have to sand this down and start over again? What is well I I took out a um a single edge razor blade and cut the drip mark off and trimmed it back as much as I possibly could and then used that same razor blade to scrape the surround of it down and awesome. you wipe on another P I've never I've never been successful in getting rid of a big glumpy finish mess before. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think it was the, the, I bought a pack of a hundred razor blades just for this so that it's like, yeah. use it and throw it away. Cause it's no longer as sharp as you want it to be. Right. Yeah. So I think that's awesome. Was it. Yeah. That's not a smooth move. That's a favorite technique of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in branding, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, there's a good spin. <laughs> but yeah, that's good. That's good. I don't know where. I think maybe Terry Masachi covered that years ago in a fixing finishing mistakes article. I oh yeah, think, I think I've seen Garrett Hack use a little tiny razor blade as a scraper or, or something. So. As you were talking, it's like, I hope that's what he did. I hope that's what he did. And then the fact you did and that it actually worked was super cool. I was afraid that shellac eventually would probably be too brittle for that, but you probably got it when it was still a little malleable. Well, it's poly. Um, Oh, poly. Okay. So it was poly after 
24 hours of drying. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's definitely, you can carve through that pretty well. Yeah. There was, you know, it was definitely the exterior of it was hard. As you cut through, the the inside was was still uncured. <laughs> yes. But, but it was it was hard enough and maybe I just nailed it on the timing. It was hard enough that the um the outside of the bubble was was um hard what is you know polymerized or whatever so that right. I could <clears throat> scrape it away. I think in the past maybe I've gone I've tried it too soon maybe and it doesn't scrape it just kind of peels and then you're in the real bad territory yes um so it's you got to find out the right time yeah awesome yeah what you you oh i know what you had yeah yeah no i'm I'm changing it though oh um this is like a whole different recording we're even talking about stuff we didn't talk about was this this podcast your last podcast where we were talking about engineering problems and thinking too much and creating more difficult solutions that was like uh 46 minutes ago okay so that was today (laughs) um so this is sort of um plays up on that theme i had mentioned going through extra lengths to make sure that this little case with with dado shelves glued up straight you know taking something I hadn't thought about and investing a lot more effort. Well, to sort of counterbalance that and keep the equilibrium even in the woodworking world, um, the way I went about cutting the dados in those shelves was a much different, different and more straightforward method than I normally do, where if I'm dadoing multiple parts and the dados need to line up part to part, I use a crosscut sled with a dado blade, and then I use a stop to you know, register one shelf with the stop, cut one piece, do the second piece against the same stop. And there were like four shelves, so it's like four dados. So I thought, can I use two stops? So with one setup, I can do one and then the other, you know. So you start to get more and more complex with the stops. So these, uh, the case side, they're only like five and a half inches wide. So I said, forget the stops. I put both pieces down on my crosscut sled, aligned them end to end, and threw a couple pieces of blue tape across the joint where they meet. And it does an amazing job to keep them aligned in in terms of sliding. And then I just marked the, you know, pretty accurate, but not exact data locations where I wanted them on just the leading edge of the leading board. Align that with the kerf in my sled because, of course, I took my normal sled, mounted a half-inch dado blade, and just cut a big old trough in there, which <laughs> I'm going to have to fix. But it's a super clean, zero-clearance little kerf right now. So I just lined up the pencil mark with that and hit it. And if I was off by a 64th of an inch here or there, it doesn't matter because they're in the same place. So to go from you know super simple glue-up to super complex it's evened out by going from a super complex data wing setup to super easy couple pieces of tape, pencil mark, go. So you know who did that? Um in and it's huh, watch this. Um a free video workshop right now. Because Barry wrote an e letter for he's he's helped me out and, and wrote a couple so that we can pile up and have them stashed away for the holiday. Um but he wrote an e-letter about how great Garrett Heck's little small tool cabinet is, mm. uh, his, the video workshop. And he, and Garrett does that. I think 
he tapes all the pieces together, runs all the dados at once, and there's no way that they're not going to match then. There you go. I knew I probably got it from somewhere. I don't mean to discredit. (laughs) No, 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 not at all. Um, Yeah. So it worked super well. So it basically, it's like get past the technique to the aim of the technique and like what, you know, what problem needs to be solved. The datos need to be in the same place. Okay. A couple different ways to go about doing it. You know, great big piece, like, um, um, like a shaker chimney cupboard, that's just rabbit and dado construction too. But you're dealing with 12 inch wide by 60 inch long case sides. Ain't no tape in those parts together. So stop blocks worked out really well there. So it has to do with, you know, not just what you're doing, but also the scale of the parts is, is comes into play as well. Lots of different challenges. You, you know what this brings up and it ties the whole episode together kind of is that um, sometimes a lot like when you did um your little letter tray thing your bill organizer yeah. uh and we did a video on stopped dados and and how you did that on the table saw a lot of people say why wouldn't you just do this on the router table and router table is is a great method for dados and stop dados and th- and and all sorts of things um but the size of the piece dictates the tool you use to do it. And yeah. router fences generally do not get far enough away from the bit um, on most tables to allow you to do a lot of case joinery um, without having to move the fence between sides or piece to piece. And, and it, that's – when you're working smaller uh, projects, I think a router table becomes more usable and eventually indispensable. Yeah. When you're using, when you're doing larger projects like a shaker chin, chimney cupboard or um, chest of drawers or whatever, that's when you start leaning on your table saw and your handheld router more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that was a really good, those little sides that organizers I'm looking at now, they're only like six inches high by 12 inches wide with some stop three sixteenths dados in there. Um, it's like that. I don't like to do stop dados on a router table are fine in skinny stock. Like if I'm doing a framing panel door and I need to do stopped mm-hmm. uh, panel grooves, um, even then I'll try not to use a straight bit because the physics of like a quarter inch diameter straight bit cutting a groove on a router table, um, it's not really efficient way to go. And also as you're routing, using a straight bit, any distance away from the fence, if the workpiece comes away from the fence a little bit and it really contacts the inside cutter, which is moving away from you, mm-hmm. It will yank that board forward. So I don't know if I've ever done that. It's always like this. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and it's never a clean cut. So um, if I am doing stop grooves, uh, especially in, in like a door frame part, I'd like to use a wing cutter, which is buried into the fence. I think mm-hmm. that was my smooth move my, in my last uh, your project. wing cutter was backwards that's right yeah because yeah, it's yeah, backwards yeah. when it's not backwards <laughs> it's a much more efficient cutting action than a single spinning bit because of the diameter of the cutter the way it enters the cut and yeah. makes the cut 
Uh, so in that same fashion, um, I typically like to do stop grooves um, or dados. A lot of times I'll use a handheld router with a fence, a plunge mm-hmm. router and a fence. I think that's a, a really good way to go about doing that. Um, but these pieces were just too small to clamp down to a tabletop and then still be able to balance a router on top without getting in the way of the clamps or whatever. So in that case, you're right. The table saw was um, the best way to do well, it. Well, and, and also the the way that you have the stop blocks in place and everything, just really, yeah. you know, you're just stacking every odd in your in your favor. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, it's that, like if if you can't make it a safe operation, then don't do it. And my yeah. um, criteria for what a safe operation is is getting, I don't know what's the word, broader and broader, or the bar is lower and lower. <laughs> Meaning, it's just like things that I would get away with on my own when I was younger, I wouldn't get away with on my own now, and the things that I might get away with on my own now, I wouldn't teach a class to do or, or show in an article. And then that further informs the way I would naturally go about doing it. Cause it's like, Mike, if you're not going to tell someone else to do it this way, <laughs> why are you doing it this way? So what's up? What's going on in the shop there, man? Hey Roz. I'm recording a podcast. <laughs> See if he gets oh. the door closed. He can't get the door yeah. closed. That's what's going on. Oh. It looked like he was super careful closing the door. He just hey, no. He shut. keeps hey. there's snow piled up against it, and you can't oh god, close it all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, so we had a, a pretty you know the the biggest snowstorm of the year so far. A good foot of snow, um, heavy snow, a lot of wind. It's a nor'easter, I guess. So um, I woke up this morning. And I looked out to my garage and my garage door was kicked open about a foot because I just have one of those latches, you know, my door latch, you know, I have to slam it four times just to make sure it's really stuck. And obviously it wasn't. And so I had like this drift about two feet high, like going into the shop. And not only that, of course, my propane heater heats my shop. And when the door is closed, it does a really good job. But it it was like, you know, it was 22 degrees out with a door kicked open 12 inches. So I have. So so your big like carriage door was open? No, just the walkout door. Oh, okay. So I don't even want to go look at my propane tank because. (laughs) um, Oh, man, it's 250 a gallon, too. That's, that's, that, that could very well. 250. Where are you getting your propane at? The hardware store. Oh, well, you, you get it delivered. Yeah, it's like yeah. four fifty a gallon right now. Yeah, oh. it's it's brutal. So, huh? Yeah. All right. Anyway, well, enough said. So that <laughs> <Sorry>. was sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, winter time in Connecticut. Um. Yes. Well, let's okay. Let's answer. We're we're let's answer a couple. We have one question. We have one question that's uh. Assembled from two questions, two wood questions. Okay. Uh, first one is from Charles. And I just, I love Charles's attitude in this question. Um, what do you folks think of hickory for a glued up slab, two inches by 18 inches by 73 inches with a three and three quarter inch wrap around of ash? 
I live in North Carolina, used to live in Connecticut, and I am a 74-year-old apprentice and will never stop learning. Man, that attitude gets your question answered on the podcast every single time. I love that. Yeah. So there was there was one word that scared me in Charles's question. Hickory or wraparound? <laughs> it was wraparound, but yeah. I don't know much about hickory at all. Ooh. Yeah? yeah. Rough? Rough stuff? Um, hickory is great green. It like splits really easy. It's probably like the, the preferred wood for like your traditional ladder back chairs and stuff. Um, but man, once it dries, it's, it's pretty rough. It's super tough. (laughs) Like, like dulls blades or yeah, just hard to work. Hard, just heavy and nasty. One of our contributing editors, I won't mention his name, Raleigh Johnson. He was like (laughs) years ago, um, he was just like saying, man, I got a great deal on a whole pallet of hickory. And it was just kind of like, I don't know how many years later, he still had that thing. And I think he <laughs> said, yeah, I finally got rid of that hickory. So I don't know. Um, it's pretty, in a big old tabletop. I mean, it, it looks nice. So I think it's pretty, if you work it, it's just, uh, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty hard. Um, it's, okay. it's a workout. It takes a something. commitment. Yeah, it does. It's not okay. something, you know, and I'm like a huge fan of white oak, not a problem. Hickory, eh, I'm going to really I'm gonna think about that a little bit. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know. So, so good luck with that big old thing. And then the wraparound. Yeah. So if you have a solid slab in the wraparound to me says you might be like mitering this thing all the mm-hmm. way around. Um, if you're not allowing for uh, seasonal movement, you're going to, you're going to run into trouble there. But if you're, you have more sort of, I guess, a end grain pieces, you know, short grain pieces running along the the ends of the board, and so they can sort of expand and contract. Um, or have it in be, a groove, or if it's like, like a, a floating panel yeah, or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, okay. Good luck, Charles. Um, yeah. The next one is from David. <clears throat> What you could do, here's here's a solution. So if you want sort of the look of a wraparound, is just edge glue the ash, the ash, right? Yeah. Long grain pieces, just edge glue them to the hickory board. So now you just have a big old board, single board, and then treat the ash on the end grain like a breadboard end. Yeah. So Don't miter it. Don't miter it. No, you can't miter it, but you can just have that sort of extend past the edges, just sort of like a breadboard end Mm -hmm. and just, you know, maybe have sort of a tongue and groove or something and just sort of bolt it in the center or some elongated holes on the ends and plug it. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, but if you treat it like a breadboard end and allow that big old hickory panel edged with ash to expand and contract, you're going to be okay. And you're still going to have that two-tone look if that's what you're going for. Yeah. Cool. Good luck with that. Let us know how that turns out. Yeah. Um, all right. So from David, I was given several in quotation marks, walnut slabs that I suspect are actually butternut due to the light color and distinctive walnut grain pattern. I know that one confused me. Yeah. Uh, they look really similar. They re- I guess they do. Uh, I plan to use this generous do- donation to build a shaker style workbench hmm. in the spring. If it is butternut, would you still use it to build a workbench? And I should have asked David whether this was for the base or the top. Yeah, right. Um, 
as Garrett Hack says, butternut is walnut's country cousin. <laughs> That's one of my favorite phrases of his. Uh, I love butternut. It does have the same grain structure as walnut. It's definitely more of a golden color. And it's also a lot softer. It has a specific gravity close to pine. So um, I wouldn't use walnut or butternut for a bench top. I think walnut is too dark. I think that'd be a problem. And I think uh, butternut is probably going to be too soft. I think for structural members, um, it's it's fine. Uh, if if you like the look of butternut, and I think it's okay. You know, I might save the butternut for door for drawer fronts or door panels or or something like that. Um, I love butternut. I wouldn't treat it like oh, I can get rid of it by using it here. Save it for something else. But you know, I understand. It's like I got this wood. This is the wood I'm using for my bench. Yeah. Can I still use it? The answer is sure. Yeah, yeah. no problem. I think it'd be fine. There, there are some who argue that a soft bench top is good um, for protecting your pieces uh-huh. because it, it'll keep you from denting. Um, if you've got any crumb wood crumbs, it'll dent the bench top as opposed to the um, to the piece. Oh, I have a smooth move there too. But um, okay. <laughs> uh, so there's that butternut is really light. So if you were like weight wise, um, so that would make great anything. Um, like you used it in your, um, in your tool chest, right? In your little travel cabinet. Exactly. So that's because I wanted something light without going to a pine. Yeah. I, um, the only time I've, I've ever worked butternut was when, uh, we had the off cuts in the old shop and it was great because it was just like communal scrap, yeah. That you'd be sitting there like, oh, I need a little teeny tiny piece of like, oh, piece of butternut. That was probably a scrap from one of your projects or something like that. It works beautifully. Um, yes, it's fun does. to work with hand tools. Yes, it is. It's like when I first used butternut, it's like, oh, this is really fuzzy. It's hard to finish and it's blotchy. And then when I learned how to sharpen a hand plane, oh, butternut is wonderful <laughs> yeah. luster. Yeah. It, it is really pretty. It's got the funness of, of uh, like hand planing pine. There are few things more fun in the world than hand planing pine. Yeah. It's kind of got that thing going on. So, yes. but then you have the added benefit of this luster that comes up once you hand plane the butternut. So you yeah. get that added. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I was doing a, for my book, I'm doing a take on Bling. a little cabinet I made for our downstairs bathroom years ago, kind of a medicine cabinet that I'm, I need a using. medicine cabinet, you know, that I'm using dado joinery, which <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm repurposing this piece many times throughout our conversation. However, I made the original out of butternut and it was a board that I bought from Garrett Hack when I was up on a photo shoot up there in my early in my tenure because he has a big barn full of lumber and stuff. It's like, hey, Garrett, you know, you got any wood you want to sell? So it was like a super special board. Um, the back panels were like tiger maple that I got from Garrett as well. So I'm designing a piece sort of based on that. And I thought, oh, well, what kind of wood do I want to use? Because um, I got tons of ash. I got white oak. I even have some walnut. I even have some shedua. I'm thinking, what is this cabinet going to look good in? And it's just like, it's got to be butternut because that's like <laughs> that's at the, the core is, yeah. of this piece. That it's like I couldn't envision it in anything else. It's like, really? I've got all this other wood. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> Go get some butternut. So <laughs> fortunately, uh, I hit up Bob Van Dyke. I ran up and he had a couple extra boards I could 
I could snag off of him. So thanks again, Bob, for that. But it's, <laughs> it's funny how you think of what is being this arbitrary choice, and it's not. It's just it just had to be that. So um, like for that that low dresser I made for the magazine, I used um, white oak for the legs and and like the rails and stuff, and then I used butternut for all the side panels and the drawer fronts. And that was a super nice combination. So yeah. that was kind of a, and also the top was white oak as well. So I really like that combination of woods. I think I really got the the luster of the butternut and the finer grain, which I think complemented the oak really well and definitely took it away from an arts and crafts to more of a contemporary look. But um, in that particular case, I didn't feel comfortable using butternut for the main structural pieces not that they couldn't have supported it, but just in my mind, it just didn't have that real strength and toughness mm. to it. I almost felt that the whole piece would look a little bit soft, you know, almost like um, like a green and green piece made of mahogany. It really demanded that all the edges have these really soft roundovers and, uh-huh. and pillowed pins. It's just because that wood just inspired that softer treatment to it. And yeah. for me, this butternut would have been the same way in that if I would have used the butternut for the structural pieces, I think it just would have demanded an overall softer approach and look to the piece, which wasn't what I had in mind. So, well, yeah. So good on you for having a bunch of butternut. If that's what it is, yeah. if it's not good on you for having a bunch of walnut. Yeah. If you got a bunch of, uh, <laughs> you have a bunch of eight quarter butternut and you live in the new England area. And, <laughs> <laughs> email us at shop talk at com. that's right <laughs> michael buy it off you yeah. all right so let's see we've got a five-star review on itunes uh thank you for all of the five-star reviews i try and i, I read them all i read all the bad reviews too um yeah. they go to they 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 go a little deeper sometimes but um let's see did i tell you about the, oh, uh let's see from jason he gave us a five-star review listen to the podcast in order from oldest to newest and i'm finally current how long does that take that's got to take a while yeah a long time uh love episodes where ben mike and anisa are on together we have a great time with those two Thanks. As it seems to be a great combo and wealths of knowledge. Thank you for all that you do. Truly inspiring and motivating for those of us who need to get that push to get out into the shop after in the evenings after a long day at the job. Keep it up. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, I have a random recommendation for all. Right now? I, this I didn't change from yesterday. Get a 3D printer. If if you think you if you if it pops into your head like wouldn't it be cool if you had a 3D printer? Go get a cheap 3D printer. I paid I think the 3D printer I have is like $200. And if you have the means, it is awesome. I use it all the time. It is not as much of a rabbit hole as you fear it to be. So Yeah, even though you said that yesterday, my reaction to you saying that again right now is exactly the same like, "Oh, what are you?" I just it immediately got stressed out because it's like, oh no, I can't even go there. So. I don't geek out over it. I don't do anything. I come up with an idea, either model it or download it from Thingiverse and just go print it. So it's, it is magic. All right. That's All super right. cool. All right. You made me, you made me a, a, a glue bottle opener. I never gave it to you. And you haven't given it to me yet. No. So I'm just saying. 
I keep, I keep thinking about dropping it off on your porch for Hanukkah or something, but like, it's not, I, <laughs> I come across it all the time and I go, Oh yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, uh, a friend who helped me with my kitchen remodel, like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago. And he left this little folding, you know, step ladder behind uh-huh. and I still have it. And every time I use it, I feel really bad. It's like, oh, I got to give this back to Chris. It's like, oh, dang it. And it's just like, I don't know. Yeah. I still, I, I need to resolve this because it's still an issue. Life so. is full of those. Yeah. So Chris, if you're still missing a ladder, which I don't think you are because hopefully you would have replaced it. I still feel bad about it. And I owe you something for that. So there is something much. high on the kitchen cabinet that he cannot reach. And he looks at it and he thinks of you every time. Yes. Where did I leave that? Pekovich! Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have used this chair, and I wouldn't have broken my ankle that one time. You know, so. uh, all right. Well, that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. If you have any questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shoptalk at taunton dot com. Uh, quick note: we will not be releasing an, an episode in two weeks. It is January second, and I am off, and I'm barely getting this one out, so I can't get two out. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with a. No- oh! Wow, it just comes out. It just comes out. We'll be back in a bit with another episode. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, man. You too, man. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Not much going on this holiday season? Join Fine Woodworking Unlimited. With more than 40 years of content, we promise to sharpen your skills and keep you entertained through the holidays and beyond. Can I get a clap out of you? Just a single one, actually. What? No, I, I I thought you said just sing a little, and I can't. <laughs> <laughs> la la la.